reading is on page 1040 of the Church Bibles. So Luke chapter 9, verse 37 to 45. The healing of a boy with an evil spirit. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marvelling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Well, it's been a glorious summer for British sports. People have um, talked of the legacy of the Olympics and the Paralympics, greater community spirit, different attitudes towards the disabled, uh, the feel-good factor. And yet, as we uh, open the newspapers, we continue to read stories marked by fear and evil. The widespread abuse of teenage girls in Rochdale, murder of two young policewomen in Manchester, continued death toll in Syria, and then this week, a five-year-old girl abducted and now presumed dead. It's a reminder that we live in a world where God's common grace is at work, but where evil is also very prevalent. And in our passage this morning, we see that same stark contrast from our our previous passage we looked at last time, where three of the disciples had a, a mountaintop experience, They saw the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration to a story where a young child is attacked by a demon and Jesus' disciples are unable to do anything about it. We're in the middle of a sermon series on the fear of commitment, looking at chapters 9 and 10 from Luke's Gospel, where the disciples have come to realise now who Jesus is. He's the Messiah come to, to save them but they're still afraid of the full implications of what it means to follow him as Lord and Master. Fear characterises these passages. And this morning we see the fear of a father who is terrified about losing his only child. And the fear of the disciples at the prospect of losing their master. Because the passage ends with Jesus giving them some news which they don't really want to hear. And rather than facing up to it, they close their ears to it. What makes the 
the story interesting is that although medical treatment may have moved on substantially since biblical times, the human emotions we see here, the human reactions, are still no different than they would be today. Well, let's start by looking at a father's desperation in the face of evil. His desperation is clear. He comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, I beg you, I plead with you. Look at my son. He's my only child. We don't know whether the man's wife was still alive or whether he'd had other children who had died, which would have been quite possible in those times. But either way, his only son alive is precious to him. And the parallels with God the Father sending his only son into the world are very clear. The child's condition is is awful. Describes it here, how a spirit seizes him, he suddenly screams. It's hard being in pain, isn't it? But it's often harder seeing a loved one, particularly a child, in pain and not being able to do anything about it. Told the spirit throws the boy into convulsions, he foams at the mouth, it scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. How long would he still be alive? Symptoms appear to be what we know as, as epilepsy, but we don't want to infer from this that epilepsy is, is caused by, by demon possession today. But it has affected the, the child's whole life. In the passage from, from Mark's Gospel, where it tells the same story, we're told there that the, the demon has often thrown uh, the child into fire or water to, to kill him. And so the father would have been afraid of leaving him on his own. And in his desperation, the father has begged Jesus' disciples to do something about it, to heal him, to drive out the evil spirit. But they weren't able to. Well, how does Jesus respond to this man's desperation? Well, the first reaction in some ways is quite surprising because it's one of annoyance. I don't know whether you think it's right for a a Christian to, to get annoyed. Um, I think certainly most of the time we get annoyed. It's um, for things that we have no real reason to. It's probably due to our impatience, um, frustration with things that are often quite insignificant, really. Um, With people who don't do things as we would like them to do them. Often it displays a a certain arrogance on our part. But this is a rare occasion when Jesus gets annoyed. And what does he get annoyed at? Well, it's really a lack of faith. What does he say? He says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Now, is he talking to the Father here? Is he talking to the, the disciples or the crowd? Or all of them at the same time? It's not exactly clear. But what has prompted this outburst is when the Father says to him, look, I asked your disciples to drive him out, and they weren't able to. And it's not the disciples have never done um, Uh, this sort of thing before. It's not that they hadn't reached that part in the training manual. If you look back at uh, the beginning of uh, chapter 9, look what it says there in verse 1. It says, Jesus called the twelve. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So what's, what's gone wrong here? What's gone wrong? Well, the parallel passage in Mark again gives us a bit more information. There it says the disciples asked Jesus, well, why couldn't we drive this evil spirit out? And Jesus says this kind 
can come out only by prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer, or in some manuscripts, prayer and fasting. And what you pick up from that is that Jesus has given them power, he's given them authority to drive out demons. But how do they call on that power? They call on it through Jesus, through the power of Jesus, through prayer to Jesus. And it may be the disciples have gone out, they've um, had some success in their healing ministry. And they've started to become maybe a bit complacent. That uh, this is quite easy, we can do anything. It's, It's just down to us, really. They don't need prayer anymore. It's not surprising that in the previous passage about the transfiguration, the father said, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. Because it looks like they've stopped listening to him. And it's an obvious lesson, isn't it? But one we forget so often. Once we stop praying, once we stop relying on God, we can't expect to see his power at work. And the reason we do often stop praying is because, well, things are going well. We feel we've got things under control. um, And maybe when a problem comes up again, we'll go back and and pray to the Lord to deal with it. When we become really desperate, we'll turn to, to the Lord in prayer. At the moment, if you look at the back page of the notice sheet, you'll see that things are going well with the building project. It's all moving ahead nicely. And the temptation is to think that we have it under control. Um, there won't be a problem. But unless we continue to pray about it and rely on God, we will hit problems which is why we have a prayer meeting on Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock for the building project. You know, if you can be there, please come and join us. Do we pray for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ daily? Or do we just look at those mentioned in the notice sheet, those who have particular needs at this time, and pray for them? Because we all need prayer. However sorted we, we may appear, we all need God's help. Likewise for our young people. You know, we, we might think, well, they're, they're coming to church. Isn't that great? Um, they must be okay. Um, maybe when they stop coming, maybe when we see they have real problems, then we'll start praying for them. We need to pray for them continually. For our missionaries. Do we just pray for them when we receive an email and they've got a particular need that they want prayer for? Or do we, again, pray for them regularly for their ministry? There's a list out in the, the hall of the... Uh, the prayer letters that you can receive from the different ministries. Have a coffee, go and have a look. Tick, tick up the ones that you would like to receive and commit to pray for regularly. Jesus wants us to depend on him every day of our lives. But I wonder if some of Jesus' rebuke is also aimed at a lack of faith that any, anything can be done in this extreme case. In the account of Mark, it says that the Father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us. It's like, well, I'm not really expecting you to to be able to do anything, but, you know, if you can do something, that would be really great. And Jesus answers, if you can, if you can, everything is possible for him who believes. To which the boy's father exclaims, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He has faith, but he's struggling to believe that, that anything is possible with Jesus. And in case we're tempted to despair at the state of our world, that, it, that it's out of control, that God has abandoned us, Jesus demonstrates in this passage that he's very much in control, that he is 
powerful. The demon here, almost sensing what is coming, makes one last desperate attempt to destroy the boy by throwing him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus simply rebukes him. He heals the boy and he gives him back to his father. And that simplicity of that action almost emphasizes his power. He doesn't have to go through some complicated ritual. He simply commands the evil spirit to come out. And surprise, surprise, the crowd are amazed at this. You know, I think we would be if we saw it right in front of us. And they're amazed at the greatness of God, it says here. And it's interesting that whenever Jesus does these miracles, we're told people praise God. They see in Jesus not just a, some sort of miracle maker, they see in him the power of God. Look back at um, chapter 5, verse 25. Remember the story of the, the paralytic that... Uh, Jesus heals. 5 verse 25 says there, after he got up and picked up his mat and gone home praising God, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. Or over the page in chapter 7 verse 16 when Jesus uh, raises the, um, the widow's son. It says there, they were all filled with awe and praised God. Now, they might not yet have acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God, but they see in him a power that must be from God. No one else could do such things. And I wonder if you open the newspapers and read about what is going on in this world, whether you're tempted to think, well, where is God? Isn't this just a hopeless situation? And in one sense, Satan's impact on this world won't change until Jesus comes again. But that doesn't mean to say that there are any individual situations that God can't deal with. I remember going to, uh, to live in Berlin in 1988 and going to different parts of the city. And wherever you went, you came up against this wall. It just sort of kept you in. And it was this vivid reminder of the way people had um, divided themselves. They had um, deprived others of freedom. They tried to control them. And you looked at it and thought, this can never change. This will always be like this. The power of these guards with all their weapons and defence mechanisms is never going to change. And yet a year later, through the power of prayer, through Christians praying about that situation, it came crashing down. Now there may be situations of sheer injustice in your life where you're having to deal with people who seem to you actually pretty, pretty evil. And you think, well, There's nothing can be done about that situation. It's just always going to be there. God does have the power to change those people. He does have the power to remove those people if necessary. And we mustn't give up hope. Likewise, we'll have friends, we'll have family members who we think will never change. They'll never see their need for a saviour. Don't give up praying for them. God has the power to change people. Jesus is demonstrating his power here. But of course it's his compassion that also prompts him to heal the boy, to return him to his father, to see the joy as his father receives back his, uh, his healthy child. Imagine the pleasure it gives Jesus to do that. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, if he has that power you're talking about, if he has that, that compassion, then why didn't he do it in my situation? Was it because of my lack of faith? Was it because I just didn't pray enough? 
we need to be careful that a passage like this doesn't teach us all that we should know about healing. We have to place it in the context of other biblical passages about God's sovereignty, of his mystery that we, we can't understand, that his ways are not our ways, that his thoughts are not our thoughts. We are told that in all things God works for the good of those who believe. By which he means to become more like Christ. And that may involve physical healing, and it may not. And if it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily reflect our lack of faith. God has the power to heal. He has the power to deal with evil. And we should pray for him to do that. Because he doesn't like illness, he doesn't like evil but we need at the same time to submit to his will. Even when we just can't understand why he's doing what he is. Which which brings us on to our last point, the disciples' fear of God's plan to defeat evil. We started with a contrast, the glory of God on the mountain and a demon who attacks a child whilst Jesus' disciples look on powerless. And it also finishes with a contrast. All were amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marvelling at what Jesus did, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 44, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. Remember what the Father said on the mountain? Listen to my son, listen to him. What is so important that he needs to tell them? The Son of Man, he says, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, what do you say to that? You can imagine them all sitting there, uncomfortable, wondering who's going to say something. Be a bit like Ed Miliband at the Labour conference this week, doing his uh, One Nation talk, and everybody getting excited and, and applauding him. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm not going to be leading you into the next election. I'm going to be arrested and put into prison. Everybody's going, What? This is the second time Jesus now has told his disciples what is going to happen to him. Remember the first time, um, back at the beginning of chapter 9? They'd just come back from healing, seeing his power at work. They saw Jesus feed 5,000 men, as well as women and children. They're all feeling great. And then he says in verse 21 of chapter 9, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. Now, that would have come as a shock to them. But then we had the transfiguration. Now we've seen Jesus cure this um, demon-possessed young boy. Things are going well again. You know, they don't need to, to think about that strange thing he said. Maybe he was a bit tired. Maybe they just misheard what he said. But now it comes again. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Really think of that. Well, it says they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they didn't grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. What is it exactly they don't understand? Is it not that here is a man who they know to be the Messiah, who they know is powerful enough to cast out demons, to to bring back the dead to life, who amazes everybody who is popular. How could such a person suffer at the hands of men? How could he let them do anything they want to him? After all, if he's God, he can do what he wants, surely. 
Now, we don't know why this was hidden from them, whether it was by God or, or by, by the devil. But they could have asked him what he meant. They, they could have said, Jesus, what do you mean by that you're going to be betrayed into the hands of men? Is this your plan? Well, tell us more about it. But they didn't. They were afraid, it says here, to ask him. And I think they are afraid that their idea of Jesus is wrong. They had an idea of Jesus and his mission, and they didn't want that idea to be destroyed. They were so focused on his greatness, his glory, as we'll see in the next passage, next time, where they're arguing about who is the greatest. They don't want the dream to end, because it will affect them too. They're being told that this man who they have given up everything to follow is going to suffer. And that probably means they're going to suffer too. Jesus has been telling them that to to follow him involves suffering, it involves sacrifice, it involves taking up your cross daily. And yet they're not listening. They don't want to hear him, they don't want to be confronted with the truth. During the last week we've heard various stories and accusations against uh, Jimmy Savile. BBC has come in for some criticism about not airing a Newsnight programme in which um, accusations were made. And we don't know the whole story. But there does appear to be a fear of the truth, of discovering something that may change people's perception of someone who is so well regarded for all his charity work, but who may have had another side to his character. Don't go there is an expression that we hear a lot, don't we? There are some areas people prefer just to leave alone. The disciples had made up their mind about the type of Messiah they thought Jesus should be. And many people today have made up their mind about who Jesus is. And often it's a convenient view for them because it means that they can live their lives the way they want to. If Jesus was just a good teacher, then it doesn't really matter if you ignore him. You can carry on living your life the way you want to. You won't be held to account one day. But if he really is the son of God, then that is something very different. That is serious. That means I do really need to respond to him. And even as Christians, we can have a a certain view of Jesus or God with which we're comfortable and which we don't really want to change. We like the the my Jesus, my saviour. But when it comes to Jesus, the judge, we're uncomfortable about that. We avoid those particular passages in the Bible. And the trouble is, when we do that, we end up with a view of God that we have created for ourselves rather than the one which he has revealed to us through his word. And that is dangerous because it implies that we know best. How much are you holding on to your view of Jesus? Do you want to know the real Jesus? The disciples were afraid of asking Jesus what he meant because it would have changed their view of him. It would also have changed what it meant to be a disciple. Instead of trusting Jesus and thinking, if that is part of his plan for defeating evil, then actually I'm happy to go along with that, wherever that may lead. Instead of thinking that way, they preferred to remain in the dark and just hope that that it wouldn't turn out like that. But of course we know it did. And so when Jesus breaks bread in the upper room on the last night and says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They still can't believe it. When he's later arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and 
The soldiers come with swords. They still can't understand it. Peter draws his sword to put up a fight. This can't possibly go this like this. And then as Jesus said what happened, as is prophesied, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. The disciples flee in fear. And Jesus is betrayed into the hands of men. He is also crucified. But he's raised from the dead. He defeats the power of evil. It's not the plan that we would expect, but it's the plan that God chose for defeating evil. So that one day we might live with him in a place where there is no evil, where there is no sin. The disciples are learning. We are learning. And this passage teaches us that we need to rely on the power of God daily in our lives. We need to not despair at evil, but trust in God's plan to defeat it. And we need to trust in God for whatever plan he has for us in our lives, because he knows what is best for us. And the question I want to leave you with is, are you willing to follow? Are you willing to follow Jesus Christ? Don't hold on to your view of him. Don't hold on to what you think he wants you to do if uh, he has something different for you. Be prepared to be surprised by God because he knows best. Let's have a moment of quiet just to um, reflect on what we've heard and uh, hear what God has to say to each one of us. And then we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder in this passage that you are a powerful God, that with you all things are possible. And so we don't need to despair at the state of our world, but we do need to have a passion for the lost. We do need to be a people who are persistent in prayer that you would overcome the evil that we see around us. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that your plans are perfect. We may not understand them, but we pray that you would help us to trust in you day by day because we've already seen the outcome of Jesus' mission on earth, how he died and how you raised him to new life. And we thank you that that possibility is there for each one of us here this morning and everybody we know. Lord, show your power to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.